Let's be clear. Black people need to know what happened to that black community, right? A hundred years ago. White people need to know. Brown people need to know. Indigenous people need to know. This time in 21, 1921, they went for the black community that was flourishing. Who and whose will they train their hate on next? You need to learn this narrative so you can protect yourself. This is all about protection. Protect your narrative, protect your legacy. We're trying to protect humanity. The Woody Guthrie Center and Bob Dylan Center present Fire in Little Africa, a multimedia hip-hop project inspired by Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You are now tuned in to Fireside with Dr. View, a podcast featuring Fila Executive Director Stevie Dr. View Johnson in conversation with national leaders in activism, academia, and culture centered on the movement behind the Fire in Little Africa music. And now, coming at you live from Black Wall Street, here is your host, Dr. View. What's going on, y'all? It's your man, Dr. View, executive producer of Fire Africa. And this is episode five of Fireside. And I have the illustrious pleasure of interviewing the Yvette Noel Shore, who has been the publicist for the likes of Mariah Carey, John Legend, Destiny's Child, Beyonce, and now Fire in Little Africa. And on this episode, we explore her journey of coming to the United States from her Caribbean country of Grenada, um, the values and, and stories and morals that were given to her from her grandfather and great grandfather, as well as her mother and how she used those values to catapult her way um, into the journalism world and now the publicist world. And we also just talked about the connection of her history and her story in connection to Fire Africa and Black Wall Street. So I just think you all will thoroughly enjoy this episode. Please like, subscribe, and share. Please share this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. This is Fireside with Dr. View. Um, shout out to the whole Fire Little Africa team. Today is a very special episode with a very special person um, on a very special day. Um, um, justice has been not even served, justice has been manifested today um, with the with the verdict of the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, literally, we were about to start this podcast and, you know, our guest was like, and what's crazy is I talked to, you know, our podcast team and was like, hey, let's find a way to incorporate, you know, the Derek Chauvin trial verdict um, into the conversation didn't know when they were gonna come to the verdict or announce the verdict. And, you know, I guess she didn't even say hi. She was just like, hey, are you all, you know, hip to what's going on right now? And it was just like, you know, everything that's been happening with Fire and Little Africa has been just really ancestral, God-driven and uh, just alignment. And, you know, I'm just truly grateful that, you know, you know, I'm a father and I'm also raising a black boy he's four. And, uh, you know, I'm, I've, I'm really reflecting on, you know, I was raised by a black mother and I was just really frustrated with how, you know, just tight she was on me as a kid, just like, just truly just tight on me, like just wouldn't let me out of her sight. And I just, and then at a young age, I just knew like I was a creative and that I, I just needed my space to like, just to be me. And it's not that she didn't give it to me, but she gave it to me with constraint 
And I was very frustrated as a kid growing up and, you know, hearing the verdict of the Derek Chauvin trial, but also just being a father and a husband of a four-year-old black black son, it's just, you kind of you kind of wish you could go back and just apologize to your mother because mm. you don't really understand what 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 that means. It's it's, it's it's really hard for me to to protect him, but also protect his innocence at the same time. And uh, I truly get it now. Um, literally just got it this weekend, um, even before the trial. So I'm just I say that to say I'm just really grateful for our our guests, our 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 kinfolk. <laughs> our, um, our family member, um, but also um, our publicist and the person who's really just who God is allowing to to lead this lead this ship for final Africa. So I just I'm just truly grateful to have the Yvette Noel Shore uh, on the podcast uh, today. Uh, just truly grateful for your presence and your light, and just really just seeing Greenwood and Fine Little Africa in Tulsa for what it is. And uh, yeah, I'm just truly honored to have you. So welcome, welcome, welcome to the fireside with Dr. Thank View. You. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. What yeah. a day. What a day. What a yeah. day to be here as a Black woman, as a woman who gave birth to a Black boy who is now a 37-year-old man, uh, as a Black woman who still to this day, my son is a married man with a daughter. I still, still, before I buy anything, anything on my grocery list, I always make sure there are light bulbs mm -hmm. because I still leave a light on for my son. I wanna- He's 37 I wanna, years old, I still yeah. leave a light on for him. I, I wanna ask a personal question before we get into you know this this interview just you know as as a mother and raising a son you know what what was it like raising him were you were you scared were you were you confident that you knew that he was going to be okay and then how has that evolved over time because i i think just for me personally but just like black people as a as a whole it's just People are people are just trying to really figure it out. And I just I don't want to take away this opportunity just to, to gain some wisdom and knowledge. So as mm -hmm. as a as a mother, um, I mean, relatively around the same age as me, like how I mean, in regards to your son, like, yeah, what was it like seeing him when you when you had him in your arms and to see him grow? And like, how did you did you protect him or did you give him the freedom? Like, or was it a balance and did you make mistakes? And if you did, like, how did you acknowledge those mistakes? So and, many mistakes, so yeah, many mistakes. Like, Cause I think what I'm trying to get to is like, how did you humanize yourself? I think when people think of Fire Little Africa and the people behind it and they see you and they see Larry, they see me, they see Steph and other people, Ethiopia, like, they, they, they put people on this pedestal and like I'm, I'm truly trying to utilize Friday Little Africa as a way to humanize people experience so like in your experience like taking the publicist hat off just as a mother and a black woman like what was that evolution like for you and what is it like to this day and even more what is it like today as you hear the verdict of the of the Derek Chauvin trial 
Well, Dr. View, that's the greatest thing anyone has ever asked me. My biggest role is that of mother. Um, my son is 37 and I'm in my 50s. So that means I have, I had that child in college. I was in college. I was a 21 year old that just got married and I was a 22 year old. So figure it out. I'm 59 years old. And, you know, usually, at least when you think of somebody like in their 30s or their 40s, you think that their parents had them in their 30s, right? So, mm -hmm. but I had him at 22 and uh, I took him everywhere. I was really, really confident that we had a big enough, big Caribbean immigrant family that came to Brooklyn that was going to protect him that with love, right? But I was always... I was never nervous when he was indoors, but the thought of my child going outdoors, because I knew from a very young age that black people are precious gems and we need to be, we need to be protected. We need to be hidden in silk and put away in that fancy drawer because it's scary to come out because somebody wants to take you, you know, you too, you too shiny. Your, your light is too bright. They want to step on you. And I, I knew that very, very young. So when my firstborn was a son, I always tease everybody that, you know, you start sleeping with a machete under your pillow because it's like, I've got to protect this king. I got to protect this king because he's going to carry on the name. He's going to carry on the name. But more importantly, whoever comes after him, he's also going to become a teacher to them, whatever other children I had. And as my husband and I got really blessed, we had two daughters. So Michael's role was really increased. Like he had to be a really, really big brother. I made so many mistakes and believe it or not, some of the mistakes come from covering him up almost too much. Um, there were times when I, he had to have been like maybe 13 before I told him he could walk across the street to the store. And he went across the street to the store. We lived in Jersey City and I followed him. I followed him and he was so upset. He was like, mom, you know, but I was always nervous. I was afraid of cops. I was afraid of bullies. I was just, I was just afraid, you know? And then one day I woke up and I think I must've spoken to my mom and she said, you have to pray on that. You have to pray on that because you're putting all your fears onto him. Mm. But I remember, even though I listened to my mom, I remember when my son got into double digits, going from nine to 10, I had to have tough conversations with him. And I was like, this is my beautiful baby boy. And I'm gonna talk to him about racism, police brutality. I'm going to talk to him about you're going to be the first person they point their finger at. If you're in a room with everybody, they're going to point the finger at you. If something bad happens, how do you protect yourself from that? I even had to talk to him about relationships at that young age and being careful who you get involved with, you know, and it's okay to say no, even as a boy. It's okay to say, no, I'm not ready for that yet. You know, those were tough conversations. I remember saying to Michael, 
yesterday you were my baby boy and today you've become a threat to society. Mm. That's how they see you. Who wants to tell their kid that? My son was a genius. He is a genius. He was so smart. I would read, I would, he would talk to me and I would run and get a thesaurus to find out what the heck he was saying. He would just take three hours and stay in his room. And then when I entered the room, he would have built a castle, like some edifice mm. out of Legos, mm. not saying a word, not coming out to get some water, not doing anything. I knew he was special and he needed to be protected. And like I said, to this day, I'm protecting him. But did I overprotect him? Yeah, I did. But will I take it back? Hell no. Not when my worst thoughts have become such a reality to so many black women. Every single name, and trust me, at my age, I've heard black men dying. I've heard their names way before this generation started talking about Aubrey and Michael Brown way before they were killing black men, names that people have forgotten now. So every time you try to let up on your kid, okay, let me just hold back a little bit, not let him, you know, go on, have a good time. Uh, breaking news, breaking news. So what do you do? You say, no, you can't go, sorry. You will, you will be happy when you're older that I protected you. But for right now, be mad at me. Go in your room and say all kinds of things about me. But I'm never going to apologize for loving you and protecting you. Hmm. That's the role of a black mom. And that's the role of every white woman, every white mother who has given birth to a black child. Because let's not take away their pain. White women who are married and in love or not married and in love with a black man or a brown man, give birth to black children. Don't forget that. Mm -hmm. Look at that young man. Look at that young man, mm -hmm. Dante Wright. You think his mother is not feeling my pain? Mm -hmm. They killed her son. To us, they killed her black son, but they killed her son. No mother should have to go through that. And guess what? No father should have to go through that. Let's not give all the credit to just the ones who give birth. Beautiful, beautiful dads lose their sons and lose their daughters. Brianna Taylor was asleep. Asleep. She was in her bed. And the most mundane things that we do, we get killed doing it. So... Don't protect our kids. Listen, I'm about to, if I were to be a mom today, I would bring in the, in the maternity ward, I would already have a harness for my child. Mm. And it'll be right here. You're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. That's what we have to do until we don't have to. But when will that day come? They have to start seeing us as human, as human. And until they do, we have to keep loving on our children, loving on each other, 
loving our community, loving our community. The whole world loved on George Floyd, his family, the whole universe, the energy in that universe. There is no way, there is no way any one of us could have seen that and pretend we didn't see it. And those 12 jurors couldn't, they could not, even if they had never had seen that video, even if they didn't see that video, and that's how they got qualified to be on the jury because they're like, I didn't want to see that. Uh-uh. No, no, no. They were forced to see it in that trial. And if you see that, I didn't see it for two weeks. I refused to. I didn't want to because someone said he called his mama. And I said, oh, my God. And when I saw it, I said, that's my goal. That's my goal. Every mother heard George Floyd say mama. And I'm sorry, you protect your kid. You mm -hmm. protect your kid. You protect all the people you love. And we have to form these circles of love and protection. And if it means that we create a very small circle, that's what we're going to do. I refuse to go places where I am not appreciated. I used to be like, well, why? I need to be there. No, you don't. No, you don't need to be there. You don't need to get validation from people who don't want you. Love and protect the people who do. Celebrate the people who love you. I'm not bowing down to my enemies. I'm sorry. All the preachers in the world could be mad at me right now, but I am not. I don't want to have dinner with my enemies. I'm sorry. And I'm the kindest person you're probably ever going to meet. But there comes a time mm. when someone starts, when they start stepping on your neck, you want to sit down with them? No. And listen, there are amazing people in this world and they come in every shape, color, size, ethnicity. And I grew up in a family of police officers. My dad was a police officer in Grenada. My cousin in Grenada. My youngest brother who died on the, on the job, not because he was working, he was on his way to work and a drunken driver uh, hit him in Grenada. And my nephew here in New York, in Harlem. So I grew up with Caribbean police officers. I grew up wanting to protect my nephew who really wanted to be a cop. Guess what? It's in the blood. My dad, his grandfather. So I don't, I'm not like, oh, cops are the worst things in the world. Mm -hmm. There are bad, 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 bad cops. Bad, yeah. bad, bad, bad cops. And Absolutely. until those good cops say that they're bad, we're going to have to keep protecting ourselves and our people and the children that we bring in this world. Okay. So I got, I'm a, I'm a DJ this thing because I'm a tie, tie it all in. Um, and, and Yvette knows I can do this really well. So I think everything that you said is the part of the mantra. Everything is us that people don't want to talk about. Um, you're talking about everything is us from a very, somber place in regards to the fact that 
You said something. You said George Floyd's mother. You said George Floyd's mother, George Floyd, her son is your son. Absolutely. And that's the Absolutely. Prime, and that's the prime example of what we're trying to convey with Finally, Africa is that just everything is us, that everything that is happening right now is connected to everybody. And not even just black people, but just everyone. Everyone is feeling what's going on right now. Everyone was waiting at their you know, their phones, their TVs, their iPads. The whole world. The, the whole, whole world stopped world. to watch this. I have friends in New Zealand Absolutely. that stopped in London, on the yeah. continent of Africa, in the Caribbean. George Floyd, George Floyd died. So things could change. I want things to change, but George Floyd's family needed George Floyd to be here. Mm -hmm. Things should have changed before George Floyd died. Mm -hmm. But because he died, we have to keep, we have to keep the pressure on for this change to keep going. And it's just enough. Yeah. It's just enough. There, are, there, there, there isn't a more prayerful people than black people all around the world, the, 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 the black diaspora. We pray for everything. We don't give up on God. And then we all get together and we question, why is it that we keep suffering? Why is it that the 85-year-old black woman in Alabama has the same story as her 25-year-old grandson? No. Why is she telling you that she couldn't go into that store? That she couldn't use the bathroom? And your story is not quite the same. But your story is, I went into the store and they killed me. I was outside the store selling cigarettes and they killed me. I was walking in the neighborhood and they told me I couldn't walk here. Happened last week. We all saw it. Didn't die, but that man roughed up that young man. Why is her story the same? Where is the progress? What is happening? And it's not just Black people in America and all the Black people who came to America, like me, the Caribbean people, or not the Black people in South America, the Colombians, the Panamanians. Right? It's not that. It's not that. It's black people everywhere. It's black people and brown people everywhere. It's the Mahdi's in New Zealand fighting for their land. The Aborigines fighting in Australia. Why is it? What is happening? When are the people, the majority rule? going to understand that this flower garden is brighter with black and brown people in it. God created all of us. How dare you say you believe in God and for nine minutes and 29 seconds? Listen, when we thought it was eight minutes and 46 seconds, I did the exercise right here in my closet. I turned everything off and I sat, I have a little stair right there. I sat on that stair 
and I put my timer on my phone and I hit go. And after three minutes, it was Niagara Falls. It, I was just, it was just, it was, I was just crying. It got to six minutes. I thought my heart was going to pop out of my chest. I could hear it. It was boom, 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 boom. I started sweating. I got so uncomfortable, so uncomfortable. After, I don't know, 24 hours of labor, a woman could give birth to a child in four seconds flat. Push, boom. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Almost 10 minutes? Someone on your neck? And I think it was um, one of the expert witnesses one of the doctors that described what the body does when it's fighting for air. And he showed how George Floyd was trying to put his nose almost like in the ground, kind of turn to get air. You think that is voluntary? No, that is the body struggling and getting ready to die. The body is very loud when it's getting ready to die, you know, the last breath, the noises that our bellies make. I'm sorry, I am not convinced that one thing didn't come out of that trial. I don't think they took George Floyd alive when they put him in that ambulance. Mm. A mother knows, a mother knows the way his head bopped when they put him in that ambulance. They knew they were bringing a body to that hospital. George Floyd's daughter is living without her dad. She's living without her dad. I'll tell you this. I, my dad had a stroke when he was like 40 something years old and he died in his 70s so almost 28 years my dad was not the dad we knew the physical dad the huggy dad the dancing dad you know introduced me to the ojs and you know earth wind and fire and he used yeah. to have his little pinstripe suit dancing you know yeah my dad had like fingers that were just just like the way he felt the stroke coming on and he gripped himself his fingers stayed that way and I missed my physical dad, but I could go visit him. His voice eventually came back. Hmm. He was still that tough Caribbean dad lying in a hospital bed. Trust me. Okay. Hmm. Telling us what to do and what not to do. So I didn't have my full dad, but I had my physical dad and he refused to die. Even though he couldn't be the dad that he wanted to be. He stayed with us. He wanted to see us grow up. He stayed with us. That young girl, she won't have her dad. It's not like he's sick in the hospital. Thank God for her uncles. Thank God for his best friend who has been, you know, but Chauvin killed her dad. <laughs> he killed her dad. George Floyd is just not a name. It's just not a hashtag. It's somebody's son, dad, brother, cousin, uncle, friend, 
Lover, how dare you? How dare you? When you hurt one person, you hurt a village. I stand here as one, but I come like a thousand. I'm sure I'm paraphrasing that so badly. But when you see me, I didn't fall from a tree. George Floyd didn't fall from a tree. That man came to Minneapolis to try to make his life better. We're happy with this verdict. But I'm also scared that now they are mad. So we got to protect our people. Young black men, careful out there in the street. Oh, you, you mentioned something. You said uh, a mother knows. That's what you said. You said a mother knows. And uh, just going to kind of, we're just going to take this, this, this mother narrative along the way with this, with this episode, because I remember a year ago on my mother's birthday, I was back home and uh, it's in reference to Fire in Little Africa too. So yeah, I remember being home and I woke up um, like two o'clock in the morning and it was like, I got to get to my laptop. And it was just one of those dreams where like, it was so vivid that I just, I just had to get to my laptop so I wouldn't forget what I just saw. Yeah. And uh I guess my mom felt me up and uh, she came out the room and we talked from like two in the morning to like six in the morning. Oh, I love that. I and, love that. And uh, she was just, she's always, my mom's a ball player. Like she's a ball player. So she's always about understanding the game, game of life. And she was just like, so tell me more about this fire in little Africa. And so I'm telling her, and at this time it's like, still relatively new we um hadn't recorded the album so this is january of 2020 hadn't recorded the album but just telling my mom like okay this is the plan these yeah. are the ideas that i have and they were obviously really big ideas but i said mom i'm anxious and she said why are you anxious and i said you know mom these ideas could these are the ideas that they, these, they killed Fred Hampton at 21 mile. Like these are like some ideas that like mm. a lot of people are not gonna like. Just the the philosophy, the the criticality, the, the theoretical, like epistemological and axiological like mindset. Like yeah. I said, mom, my fear is that, you know, I'm not gonna live to see the fruits of my labor. And, you know, going back to young Stevie or young viewers, like, she, she protected me this whole time. Mm. And so I was under the assumption that she was gonna say, babe, be careful, like protect yourself, which I think was a part of the narrative, but she said one word in a question mark that I think really sparked how I had to like look at myself as a living ancestor. Mm. And she said, like the coldest line ever, question mark, she said, and? I said, I'm, I don't feel like I'm gonna see the fruits of my labor or to see my son uh, grow up. And she said, and? And I, I just, it just threw me for a loop because I'm like, this isn't the same person that I remember protecting me. And the only thing that I can, as you were talking, the only thing I can come up with now is that I got into a point where she, my mom had been so obedient to what her assignment was 
in relationship to me that I think she had already received confirmation. She, she had received confirmation that this conversation was going to happen eventually. And she knew what she was, what she had to say, even though she didn't want to say that. Mm. And I think that was the critical moment for me where I started to look outside of myself and be like, how do I make sure that Final Africa is a project that speaks to everybody? And I think everything that we've done on the on the on the ground here in Tulsa in Greenwood, and then obviously having the greatest publicist oh my god <laughs> of, of all time and 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 I, and I have to and I have to be honest um the first person so to give context when Larry Jenkins um told me that I was going to get an interview with you prior to you coming on the team I was just like I actually googled you and I was like <laughs> I googled your name and it and it populated I'm writing in, like Larry said, look up Yvette Noah Short, call me back. And I hang up the phone and I Google your name and it populates. And I'm like, I think I spelled her name wrong. And put it back in again. And same thing happened. And so when as I'm reading your, your story, uh, Grenada, and you know, you coming to the United States and just the things that you've done, the people that you've worked with. And we're definitely going to talk about those things. And I'm just like overwhelmed with just like, what is happening right now? And like, <laughs> but like, how do I prepare for this moment? Like, I didn't feel like I was prepared. And again, God showed up because when we get on the call and I remember the words that you said to me, you said, I'm, I'm literally thinking that my back is against the wall and the, the world is on my shoulders. And I have to convince Yvette Noel Shore to come work for Fire Little Africa. And you get on the call and you said, as I'm about to present, you say, Dr. View, I just want to let you know that the answer is already yes. I'm going to let you present the answer is already <laughs> yes. And, and again, what I'm getting to is like the difference for me, the difference for Fire Little Africa was the sacrifice of my mother, but also the mm -hmm. sacrifices of you as a mother and how you see, like, I, and, and this is my question, like, and I make, and in my mind, I think I know the answer, but it's like, what made you say yes to Fire Little Africa? Like, because ever since that day, I've been really wrestling with, with things that I probably shouldn't even be wrestling with. I shouldn't be worrying about like things like this is not a practical project. This is a this is a definition of an impossible project. So I'm just why yes? Like not in a in a in a a negative way, but like what made you say yes to Fire Little Africa? The narrative. The narrative. The ancestors screaming out for the narrative to be told. Um, ever since I was a little girl. I was so nosy about everything that was happening. I was so curious to discover that such a tragedy happened and that they lied to everybody about it or just didn't say anything about it or faked it or made up some. 
and in my heart of hearts, I'm deeply a journalist. I'm deeply a journalist. I like uncovering the truth. And the narrative of Tulsa, of Greenwood, of what happened, you know, that race massacre. Um, you know, I also believe that not everything has to have a Grammy winning, Oscar winning name, recognizable name for the narrative to be profound. And the community story of these artists that had like hearts and were all searching for the truth resonated with me. Um, you know, as an immigrant woman, as an immigrant woman uh, who grew up in a colonized island, so much is not known. So much is not known, you know, forced to sip tea a certain way, you know, forced to eat certain things, forced to say certain things. And then I dig into my own history and I discovered that my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was one of the original people of the Caribbean, you know? She was an indigenous person. And I always wondered why she looked the way she looked, you know? And to this day, I'm trying to figure out where these cheekbones of mine came from, you know, and they're, they're hers and it came from someplace, you know? And so the, the, the story, say, I, I didn't even hear music. I, I, I'm interested in the narrative, you know, hearing the music was, you know, like, you know, having the dessert after the good meal, <laughs> but the meal was already cooked. Absolutely. The meal was already cooked. And let me just say something about you. Um, I think I said that to you before that um, a lot of people get turned on by some, some stuff, you know, all kinds of stuff. Well, this person looks a certain way and this person dresses a certain way. And like, Man, bring me the smarts. Bring me the smarts. And I just loved how intelligent you approach this. You know, that it is not just music to entertain, but, you know, it's what we call edutain, right? Absolutely. You know, it's really about an education. And let's be clear, Black people need to know what happened to that Black community, right? A hundred years ago. White people need to know. Brown people need to know. Indigenous people need to know. Okay? Because let me tell you something. When they come for you, if you didn't help other people, if you weren't there when they came for other people who didn't look like you, when they come for you, nobody will be there for you. So it means that everybody needs to learn the story. Everybody needs to protect their family, their legacy. Because, you know, this time in 21, 1921, they went for the Black community that was flourishing, who and whose will they train their hate on next? You need to learn this narrative so you can protect yourself. This is all about protection. Protect your narrative, protect your legacy, protect well, your not, not only are we protecting Black people, we're, we're trying to protect all humanity. We're trying to protect humanity. We're trying to protect humanity. 
you know? I am fascinated by the stories of the Holocaust and I'm fascinated by how much uh, the stories are still being told because they want every generation to say these two words, never again, okay? So they're making sure you know what happened to them and all those conspiracy theories, uh, it didn't happen. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. The Holocaust happened, slavery happened, you know, police brutality is happening. Believe people when they say crap happens to them and learn, learn so you could avoid it happening to you. You know, that's why I said, yes, we got to tell some stories. So you mentioned the narrative. Um, that, that's what brought you in. And now that you're a part of the team and you've been around the artists and the, the, the executive team and listen to some of the songs, um, do you think Fine Little Africa will be an opportunity for people to learn and or protect humanity? Or do you feel like, what, well, what do you think the implications or how do you think Fine Little Africa will be reverberated around the world? I think many, many times when the story is being told, it's not authentically told by the people who live in that place. And uh, I always say that if you tell your story authentically, it pushes everybody else to tell their own authentic stories. And so after speaking with some of the artists, their, their passion is palpable. Uh, their need for the truth is like a thirst. And for those who have direct descendants, it's literally knowing where you came from so you could know where you're going. Knowing your past, knowing your past is so important. Asking them questions like, when did you first find out about this? And being shocked that some of them found out in their 20s late 20s i think that this is not just a tulsa story it's an american story it's a global story it's a story of young people coming together and saying we're going to make this right for our ancestors who perished and in doing so we're going to rebuild and extend create pipelines and create space for people to earn, to thrive, and to hand it down. That's, that's, just, that's, that's heavy and beautiful at the same time. Um, you mentioned, never forget where you're coming from, and you have a, you have a story as well, uh -huh. uh, coming from where you come from. And so for those who don't know, and, and me just, just the one to hear it, just from, from, from <laughs> your mouth as opposed to reading about it, I mean, just talk about, just talk about values, talk about alignment. Let's, do, let's talk about values and alignment in the context of like, what were you told as a kid? Well, what are those privileged memories that you remember that helped you get to where you are today? So you're talking about your story and also talking about your journalist journey. Obviously, things that you've worked with, you know, in regards to Columbia and, yeah. um, 
um, everything else. Just like, can you really just talk about, you know, what, what those things meant to you? Those values are still with me every day. I, I had a very demonstrative grandfather and I had a very quiet <laughs> grandmother and I knew that they loved me uh, in a big, big, big way. But my grandfather was loud. He was big. He was big and tall and loud. And he would say, oh, I look okay, but I married the prettiest girl. Okay. All right. Now let's move on. And he had a little shop. And in that little shop, he was purposeful about teaching me and my brothers and sisters. We were the children that he didn't plan on, right? We were his first daughter's children. <laughs> and my mother uh, began to show signs of um, uh, instability, you know, uh, probably by the time she was in her early 20s. Uh, later on diagnosed as um, uh, bipolar behavior. But my grandfather just stepped in and said, all right, I guess I got five new children, you know, and raised me and my sisters and my two brothers. Uh, I have lots and lots more brothers and sisters from my daddy's side. But, but the, a lot of us, like double that amount. Uh, but those are the ones that were raised in that house. And every day was a lesson. Every day was a lesson. Papa taught me how to be kind. Um, he taught me how to be generous. Uh, when I was a kid, there were lots and lots of women. Every time I turn around, somebody was just pregnant. I would just see these big bellies over our counter at our shop. And, and after they would come in, I would kind of notice that Papa wasn't charging them for the groceries. And he would say, uh, it's you're too young to realize how young that girl is with that belly. She's not going to be able to feed herself or that child that's coming. So what if we gave her some free milk today? You know, and I, I, I learned that I'm generous to a fault because of him. I hear it every day. You know, he and my aunt would sit down and teach me how to count using um, Coca-Cola bottles because we had a store. So we sold everything, everything from kerosene for your lamp <laughs> to flour and sugar and soap and everything. It was just one of those, those um, bodegas, really. I thought it was a huge supermarket, but it was really probably a bodega, right? Yeah. Um, he also taught me about hard work because he was his own uh, businessman. His own, you know, he owned his company. He had his store, but he also had acres and acres of land. And in those days would ship a lot of produce um, to England bananas cocoa nutmeg for you know the spice that is so good like in cakes and things and the oils are used for medicinal purposes and everything like that and i just watched him i watched him do all of that and then one day my grandfather this was the lesson that will stay with me forever my grandfather called me i was really really tiny and uh he handed me a, a brown paper bag and put me up on the bus there were wooden buses lifted me up, put me on the bus and the bus driver dropped me where I'm supposed to go. And I'm supposed to hand the bag to the merchant, the, the, the merchant that's by the, by the shore. He got all of the groceries from Trinidad, the bigger Island that we would now get at wholesale to bring up into our little store up in our little village. Wow. And 
when he opened the bag and he poured down all that money, thousands of dollars for the bale of sugar and the bale of rice and the bale of flour and oil and codfish and everything else and soap and rice. And in that moment, I realized that my grandfather had empowered me, that I was part of a conduit that was going to feed my village. Mm. And that he trusted me. He trusted me. And I worshipped him until the last, until that last piece of earth fell on the top of his coffin because he saw the promise in me that escaped his daughter because of mental illness. Mm -hmm. So every day since that day and every day now, I do everything, everything with integrity with kindness, hard work, everything in praise of what I've been taught by the smartest man I knew who never had a formal education, the hardest working man I know, the gentlest man I knew, even though he was big and bold, he loved us. He loved us 200% more than he should have because he needed to make up for the days when they were dark and cloudy for the daughter he loved so much. And to this day, it's Papa. Papa, what would Papa do? Now, I'm not going to take anything from Mama because she was a saint. Oh, she was my, oh, she was just everything. I just wanted to be like my grandma so badly. Um, But they also taught me that you have to forgive and you have to meet people where they are. So when I grew up, I didn't question why my mother was not available to me. I just became available to her. I just became available to her. I just looked at her in her eyes. I was 14 years old. I came to this country and I said, mommy, until God takes your last breath, you can count on me. I will do everything for you. I will feed you. I will clothe you. I will wipe your tears. I will wipe the spit off your lips. I will lift your leg up when they're heavy. I will love you, mommy, until the very end. And I did. And that doesn't come because we fell from trees. That comes from watching people do that for other people. And it comes from parents and grandparents being purposeful and telling you you're worthy. You're worthy. And if you think you're worthy, you're going to think everybody else is worthy. And this is what I say to people. Why do you love so much, Edad? You're always smiling. Why are you so happy all the time? You know what? I love because I was loved. Mm. I love because I was loved. My love is big enough to protect the people I love. My love is big enough to do my job and elevate young people's narrative. My love is big enough to get to the truth of who we are, whose we are, where we came from, and where the hell we going. Because we going. (laughs) We going. Let me show you something. Let me show you something. I know this is a podcast, so you're the only one that's going to see it. But Mm. 
these are the people. Mm. That indigenous woman of Black, Indian, Carib, Arawak heritage, and my African Caribbean grandpa mm. that never, ever smiled. <laughs> That's beautiful. And they are with me at all times, at all times. So is it, is it safe to say, because I'm, I'm always asking, because I'm feeling it right now with Final Africa, but I mean, obviously with the work that you do, like, it seems like you don't sleep. So, <laughs> I sleep like, better now. The, okay. the, the only good thing, the only good thing that came out of this horrible pandemic is that after about six months of going to bed six o'clock in the morning, one day I was just like, girl, stop. Like literally, I was just like, stop. I sleep. I sleep now. I don't, I still don't sleep eight hours. I don't think everybody needs eight hours, but I, I definitely know that it's time to go to bed because I know I can't be my best and what I do takes, you know, energy. Uh, so I, I get some sleep now. I get about, I get about five hours. I mean, you know, it, it's all I need. I'm good. About five. Okay. About five. Some people need eight. Some people need 12. I don't. When, if I, if I ever get eight hour night sleep, I am groggy the next day. I'm just groggy. I'm just, I can't, five hours is my sweet spot and then I'm good to go. Yeah. Okay. That's, I'm going I'm to I'm see what, what my uh, sweet spot is like to be now. <laughs> um, so fast forward, um, come to the States, Black Beat. Start. You start at the Black Beat. If I'm not. If I'm not mistaken, um, it's my first. It's my first real job. I actually had an internship first at Gannett Westchester newspapers, okay. and I had done little writing for like, um, you know, like community paper, church paper, stuff like that. And uh, then I, I got an internship at Gannett Westchester newspapers. They were just, um, as a corporation, they were just developing the colorful newspaper, which became USA Today. It was like basically the first national newspaper and it had color borders, purple for life and, you know, sports and things like that. Um, and then I went to Blackbeat. Then I got an opportunity to go to Blackbeat and I spent about ooh, almost 10 years there, probably nine and a half years there. And um, while at Blackbeat, I met Larry Jenkins, you know, mm. and uh, <laughs> uh, he was a great publicist. I admired him. We became friends and... Uh, in my capacity of uh, being an editor, I called Larry because he was my friend. I was just really upset that Mariah Carey's album was out and I didn't have it. <laughs> and I think Larry said, oh, we haven't sent it yet. I said, look, I work for Sterling McFadden Publishing. They have other magazines that are written for a pop crowd. They have it. I need it. He called me back. He was like, Yvette, mm. you're so passionate. You ever mm. thought about being a publicist? I was like, Larry, I'm on deadline, okay? I just need the album. He said, Yvette, we've been looking for a publicist. I think you could make you, you would make a really good publicist. Aha moment. Why didn't I think about that, Yvette? Why didn't I think that the journalist could be a publicist? Come up, come up, come up and talk to me. I said, Larry, I just need the album. Please, please. Eventually, I went up. And Larry, Larry basically did not even interview me. Larry was like, girl, you want the job? 
Sounds fact, like it is. No, seriously. In fact, Dr. View, I was working at Columbia Records. I started about October 3rd, 1993. So this is probably March or April. And I get a call. I get a call from HR. I've been, I've been getting paid every two weeks. I get a call from HR. Um, could we get a resume on file? <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> I don't even think he remembered to give them my resume. Yeah, he was just he, like. He just told them, you got to hire. I, I, I'm going to hire this girl. I'm going to hire this girl because Yvette's going to Yvette's gonna show you. Yvette's going to show you. She's going to bring a whole other way to do this. And I need this on my team. And he. I mean, he was tough on me. Let's not get let's not get this twisted. Larry Jenkins was tough on me, mm. and I'm so grateful for that. You know, he he took a red pen to my reports. He made me want to do my work better and tell you that I did my work in a in a in a better way mm. to show you what I've done. Mm. Uh, he made writing a press report you know art art you know he sounds like uh, a boosting sounds, your confidence he sounds like a very gorgeous quality control type of person in relation to absolutely publishing. absolutely mm. i think larry jenkins in another life could have been an incredible uh football coach because mm. he really was our coach like he really wanted at the time i think he was managing probably eight to ten publicists uh, in his department and he was really he was really amazing and when he was tough on you you knew it you knew it um, oh, so with the artists that you've worked with and I'm not going to give it away for the for the audience but I, I and it's not and I want to make sure I do the disclaimer it's not to flex it's more so to show the story like you came from Grenada Back little Grenada. Little, we, have little. A, we have a hundred and I want to say maybe twelve thousand people on three islands. Okay, we have we we have we're we're a three island nation, and there are only a hundred and twelve thousand people. <laughs> and, be, and because of your because of your grandfather and grandmother's obedience in the midst of what your mom was going through. Yeah. And the values that they gave you and how you internalize those values and then gave it back not only to them, but to your mother. And then you come to the United States, Blackbeat. Yeah. Good friends with Larry Jenkins. Larry is is hard on you. <laughs> and see yeah. and see something in you that you didn't see in yourself at the time. Nope. Nope, I didn't. And then you go on this amazing journey with these amazing artists. One, can you, you name those artists, but also name what you learned from them, but also like how your values stayed the same throughout that journey. Yeah. Um, can, can, can you talk a little bit about that too? Uh, well, when I first started, like I mentioned earlier, the first person I ended up working with was uh, Mariah Carey, which is really the weirdest thing that I would just ask for her album. And then a week later, it was her publicist. I was like, what is going on? 
only in America, only in America. What is happening? Only yeah. in America, but forget only in America, only Larry Jenkins' mind. Absolutely. That only Larry Jenkins' mind. I would say, all right, girl, you asked for it. Here you go, you know? Um, I worked with Mariah and then I kind of got um, sort of named as the give it to Yvette kind of. <laughs> so I ended up having like a sort of mashup of artists. I wasn't like a specialist in one genre. Uh, so I did jazz. I had uh, I, I worked um, uh, with some of the Masalis uh, folks, and then I had um, Grover Washington Jr. I worked at some point with uh, the great uh, uh, Nancy Wilson, and then of course I was Caribbean, so all of the reggae people came to me. World of Girls, Super Cats, you know, and it was all that. And then, um, you know, around me on our great team, my amazing buddy, uh, Miguel Baguer, had uh, the Fugees. And with the Fugees came, hello, my Haitian brethren, you know, Praz and Wyclef. So I was like, oh, my gosh. And then I, don't, I didn't get to work them. I worked, I worked uh, both Lauren and Clef after solo. But that was Miguel's act. But we were all there all there on that team in the middle of just the most ex just the most beautiful explosive time in music but especially for black music mm. and then of course the brat came you know and i i did i, I the brat blew my mind you know she was so yeah. talented and she was so different and i just really really loved her and then uh, i had kenny Lattimore, um uh kenny Lattimore and uh, Kenny Lattimore and Maxwell came around the same time. So Miguel had Maxwell and I had Kenny Lattimore, right? And then uh, after that, um, I was just kind of sitting in my room, trying to work, trying to get my axe on. And I got a call to come downstairs to the conference room uh, because they had just signed four girls from Houston, Texas. Mm. And they really wanted me to meet those girls because they thought with my experience with teenagers from Blackbeat magazine, you know, I'd be at least I, I would at least be kind to them. Right. I'm not, were they I, they, they were when I met them, they were, I think, between 15 and 16. And um, I, uh, I I figured in my head, no one said it to me, but I figured in my head they don't know what to do because there's all this competition out there. You know, there's En Vogue, you know, there's SWB. I'm like, they're like, well, we really love these girls, but oh, I don't think we know what to do with it. But at least so the worst thing that could happen to them is Yvette Noel sure gets to, to love them. Okay, so instantly loved them. Got back to Larry's office and said to Larry, um, can I go to Houston for a weekend? Because I was trying to think about my Blackbeat days when covering acts meant breaking them up for the magazine as well. Mm. Like doing the photo of the group, but also talking about them individually because different fans like different people. Like mm. with New Edition and all of that, you know, New Kids on the Block and all of that. People would cut out even just their heads because I'm a Bobby fan, you know, I'm a Ralph fan. And I was mm. like, oh, I got to get mm. to know these ladies so that I can pitch them as a group but also 
you know, be able to say different things about each one. So if a journalist is not like, eh, whatever, it's like, oh, she likes this. Oh, she's like this. And whatever it takes to get someone interested, that we can change my life. That mm. we can change my life. I met four, then four, absolutely beautiful, brilliant, smart young women who at that time were already rehearsing hours and hours a day, you know, performing in the parking lot at, at a Walmart in Houston, Texas, as though they were at Madison Square Garden. They were so driven. They were so driven. Did I know that that spring trip to Houston in 1997 would change my life forever? No. But did I see greatness? I did. And did I, did I roll my sleeve up and say, I want to be part of everything they do? I did. I did. And then when they became three, that was a huge change, a huge change that came about with um, Charlie's Angel. And people don't, people don't remember just the juxtaposition of that. Charlie's Angels, three, and then it was three. And then the song was Independent Women. And it was like the first time people really paid attention to their purposeful feminist voices that were coming out of, they were no longer kids, you know? They were literally saying, we're grown. Um, I loved every part of it, every part of it. And then I branched out and I started working their individual projects because they did some solo things before the official 2005 hiatus. Uh, so after Destiny's Child, I became Beyonce's publicist. I became Michelle's publicist. I became Kelly's publicist. Um, I'm still Beyonce's publicist for all those years. Guess what, though? The universe will conspire to get you what you want because I'm also Michelle's publicist and I'm also Kelly's publicist right now in 2021. So honestly, those ladies have been in my life for a lifetime. And the one story that I like to tell people is that years ago, when we would do a photo shoot or they would have a performance or something, uh, you know, maybe people want to go out to dinner afterwards or something. And I would always mouth to them, I'm going home to my babies. And we still laugh about that because now that, you know, Kelly and Kel actually Kelly and Beyonce and Latavia and Latoya, our mothers, they remember. Mm. They said, oh, my God, we know what that is. We know what that is, you know, so it's... um. It's just a big circle and I have not changed who I am. I operate with love and protection. For me, it's uh, publicity is second to what I do. Protection is first. Um, protecting the narrative, protecting their privacy, um, protecting who they are as private citizens and making sure that the world separates the public from the private to give them space to grow as individuals. And of course I left up, you know, my friend, my friend, my energy, you know, John Legend. I worked with John as well. And John and I are really great friends today. I love John. John is 
John is very special to me. I can't, you know, one of these days, I mean, no, not one of these days I'll tell him. I always tell him he's very special to me. And uh, how it came about with John was also very special. Just, you know, he wanted to work with me. He said, he said, whoever's doing Beyonce's publicity, I want to meet them. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I'm busy. Okay. And then he, he went ahead and he gave me a private performance, play the piano. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really special. Okay. So I'm going to, for the sake of time, I'm going to give one last question, but I'm going to try to okay. embed, embed these questions to one. Um, Yvette, you are a living ancestor. <clears throat> oh and uh, so the question is, what does everything is us mean to you? But I want to kind of set it up. So um, Grenada has Black history. Greenwood and the artists and the creatives here have history. When you think of everything is us in the context of what we're doing with Friends of Africa, how do you think our history will speak back to your history? And if we want to go deeper, how does it speak back? How, how will it speak back to your grandfather and grandmother in the context of like, what I'm really asking is how do you think, what do you think they would think of Fine Little Africa? Mm. And what would, and if they didn't, get it at the first like if you had to have a conversation with them right now it, okay put it like this when you made a call to a certain person about getting a a, a zoom call you mm -hmm. talk you talk you put it you said put on everyone get on zoom i'm gonna call them right now and you just you gassed them up to the point where i was like okay i don't even think it's that good at this point <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I, I know I know what we got is good, but okay, you bet. So what I'm getting to is like if you, if you, if your if your if your if your mother, if your mother was here today, what would you tell her about Fire Little Africa? And it's really the context of like history talking to history. Yeah. Your daughter talking to a mother, Fila talking to Grenada and to the world. Like what yeah. is in the context of that, what does everything is us mean to you? And what would you say to your mother about this project? Well, everything is us. It's all of us. It's not just the folks in Tulsa. It's not just the folks in Grenada. Everything is us is the story of Black people. It's the story of community. The story of who we are. It's the story of having a piece of bread and breaking it in three so that we could all eat. And it's the story of truth. And I believe that where I come from, that we've always seeking the truth. Grenadians are revolutionaries. Like we don't play. We don't play in Grenada. You know, we wanted our independence. We got our independence. Grenadians stand up and fight, you know, to make things right. So I think even before my grandparents had to say anything it's it's already in the it, it's in the bone it's in the blood you know so I think I would say papa mama mommy here I am 
the girl that you said it's okay to love words, the girl that you put in that church and say, read loudly, the acoustics in there will carry your voice from the first pew to the back. We believe you, Yvette. We believe you. Say it out loud. I would say I've been given the opportunity to tell the story of some people who were living in America when you were already grown. I would say to my mother, this is what happened. And here I am, born in 61, 30 years to a month after you were born, mommy. And I get a chance as the immigrant black girl to be curious, to seek the truth in your name and in their name in Tulsa, to tell people how it's so important to tell your story. And I would say to my mom specifically, thank you. Thank you for the days when you were unwell. And I got to see the glimpse of your beauty and your brilliance. And for me to realize that my need to always speak the truth came from you. My need to seek the truth came from you. My love of words came from you. You taught me, mommy, how to enter a room and dig my toes and pretend they're sand from the Grenada. Mm. You taught me to dig my toes in, stand firm, tell my story. And I thank you. I even thank you for the days, mommy, when you were so sick that I had to cradle you because it was our bond. Gave me the strength. Gave me the strength to fight and live another day to tell your story. All these years later, mommy, I am talking about you. You don't die. You don't die until no one says your name. And mommy, mama, and papa, every opportunity I get until my last breath, I will say your name. You are the most three important people ever in my life. And your stories, I'm going to tell it one day. I'm going to tell it one day. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to write it down. You know why? Because we got to make sure people keep saying your name. Your name, those folks in Tulsa, they got to keep saying your name. You know why say your name, say their name is so important in the Black community? Because if they don't say your name, you truly die. You truly die. Names are magical. They're magical, but someone has to scream them out. Because it's not just the name. It's all the root that comes from the name. It's the storytelling. It's the narrative. It's the life. It is, you know, when someone die and they talk about the dash. The dash is the smallest part, the smallest part in there, right? It's the years, how you lived. The dash is that little thing, 1921, 2021. The dash, that little thing is the life. It's the life. It's the narrative. 
So that's what I would say to my people. And in the end, I would say to them, thank you for this little flat nose. Thank you for these high cheekbones. Thank you for my smile. Thank you for my confidence. Thank you for every valley, every hole I have fallen into. And thank you for the strength you gave me to crawl out of it. Yvette, we thank you so much for being a part of Fireside with Dr. View. This is episode five. Uh, please like, subscribe, share um, Fireside, as well as make sure you follow us at Final Africa on all streaming platforms, finalafrica.com. If you'd like to donate, finalafrica.com backslash donate. Um, but we're just truly grateful for you all listening and sharing. And always remember that everything is us everything. If you love Fire and Little Africa and want to support the movement, head over to our online store and shop our clothing line. We've got hoodies, shirts, hats, and more designed by none other than Trey Thaxton of Greenwood Ave. Check out our full line today at fireandlittleafrica.com slash shop. Please remember to post a pic and tag us on social media. All right.